So today we're going to be reading from Samyutta Nikaya 12.23. It's called Proximate Cause. And this is known as the Upanisa Sutta in uh, Pali. So we talked about dependent origination for quite a bit, understanding dependent origination. Dependent origination is the elaboration of the first and second noble truths. This is the transcendental dependent origination, which is the path leading to the cessation of suffering, which means this is the elaboration of the third and fourth noble truths. So it begins, At Savati, Bhikkhus, I say that the destruction of the taints is for one who knows and sees, not for one who does not know and does not see. For one who knows what, for one who sees what, does the destruction of the taints come about. Such is form, such its origin, such its passing away. Such is feeling. Such its origin, such its passing away. Such is perception. Such its origin, such its passing away. Such are volitional formations. Such their origin, such their passing away. Such is consciousness. Such its origin, such its passing away. It is for one who knows, for one who knows thus, for one who sees thus, that the destruction of the taints comes about. So understanding what? The impermanent nature of the five aggregates. These are the modes of our experience. Form, feeling, perception, intentions, and consciousness. Understanding their impermanent nature, which leads to understanding that they are not worth holding on to, which means that they are not to be considered me, mine, or myself. When you truly experience this, when you truly know this for yourself and see it, when you understand the links of dependent origination by actually experiencing them after you come out of cessation and let go completely, then the destruction of the taints is possible, which means arahatship. I say, bhikkhus, that the knowledge of the destruction in regard to destruction has approximate cause. So there is the knowledge that the taints have been destroyed and there is the actual destruction of the taints. It does not lack approximate cause. And what is the proximate cause for the knowledge of destruction? It should be said, liberation. Vimuti. Here, it's really implying the experience of cessation of suffering, cessation, complete cessation. Mind makes contact with Nibbana, and from there, there is liberation of the mind. I say, bhikkhus, that liberation too has approximate cause. It does not lack a proximate cause. And what is the proximate cause for liberation? It should be said, this passion. Dispassion, remember we talked about dispassion as detachment, vairagya, right? That is the mind that is in a bubble 
unaffected by whatever is going on. Remember that story of holding on to the bowl of oil and just watching that, not being affected by what's going on around you. So staying with the mind, not letting even things are bombarding the mind, not letting the attention sway there. You become aware, okay, there's a lot of stuff going on, but if you keep your attention on your mind, then dispassion is present, being unaffected by what's going on. I say bhikkhus that dispassion too has a proximate cause. It does not lack a proximate cause. And what is the proximate cause for dispassion? It should be said revulsion, disenchantment. Remember what disenchantment is. You've had too much of that chocolate cake. Or you've had too much of that favorite meal of yours. You've seen too many of these thoughts in the mind. And you're kind. it's tiresome. You want to do away with them. You're done with them. So if they keep coming up, you don't care. You're just disenchanted with them. You're staying with the quiet mind. I say bhikkhus that revulsion too has a proximate cause. It does not lack a proximate cause. And what is the proximate cause for revulsion? It should be said, the knowledge and vision of things as they really are. This is yata, buddha, jnana, Dasanam. Seeing things as they actually are. The knowledge and vision of things as they actually are. Which is synonymous with upeka. Equanimity. The perception of equanimity leads to the perception of disenchantment. The perception of disenchantment leads to the perception of dispassion. The perception of dispassion leads to the perception of cessation. So, if the mind is starting to plunge towards cessation, but it's not getting there completely, there's not enough dispassion. If there's not enough dispassion, move one step backward. Go to the disenchantment. If the disenchantment is not strong, go to the equanimity. What if the equanimity is not too strong? Now we'll see. I say, bhikkhus, that the knowledge and vision of things as they really are, too, has a proximate cause. It does not lack a proximate cause. And what is the proximate cause for the knowledge and vision of things as they really are? It should be said, concentration, samadhi, ekagata, a collected mind. If your mind is not collected enough, that means there won't be equanimity. So if you don't have equanimity, that means you need to strengthen your collectedness. How do you strengthen your collectedness? Now we'll see. I say bhikkhus that concentration too has a proximate cause. It does not lack a proximate cause. And what is the proximate cause for concentration? It should be said happiness. Happiness here is translated from the word sukha. Comfort. Being at ease with everything. Being in the mind, in the body, as it is. No discomfort. But what if there's no discomfort? What do you do then? Or rather, what if there is no comfort? 
I say bhikkhus, that happiness too has a proximate cause. It does not lack a proximate cause. And what is the proximate cause for happiness? It should be said, tranquility, relaxation, pasati. If the mind is not comfortable, there's agitation. If the body is not comfortable, there's agitation. Pull back your attention a little bit. Relax, soften. Remember, drops. Don't resist or push. Soften and smile. Relax. But what if you're not relaxed? Then what do you do? I say, bhikkhus, that tranquility too has a proximate cause. It does not lack a proximate cause. And what is the proximate cause for tranquility? It should be said, rapture, joy, piti. There's not enough enjoyment in the process. If you get too technical, am I in this jhana? Do I have enough of this factor? Am I staying with my object of meditation? Are the hindrances present? Did I do the six R's correctly? If you get too technical, there's not enough enjoyment. Let go of that thinking mind, trying to analyze what's going on. Just come back and enjoy the process. Come back to the present moment of the experience and allow joy to come up. So now I should also say, what we're looking at is the development of the enlightenment factors as well. Why? Because uh, what is dependent upon the disenchantment, or rather, what is disenchantment dependent upon? Equanimity. So the enlightenment factor of equanimity is present. Dependent on concentration, the equanimity arises. So you need the concentration factor. Dependent on sukha, the concentration is there. And dependent upon relaxation, the tranquility factor, the sukha is there. Dependent upon the joy factor, the tranquility is there. Remember when we're doing the six R's, what are we doing? We are recognizing, so bringing up the mindfulness, bringing up investigation of states, releasing, balancing the energy, relaxing, having tranquility, coming to the smile, bringing up joy, coming back to your object, concentration and equanimity throughout. But let's say you don't have joy, then what do you do? I say bhikkhus that rapture too has a proximate cause. It does not lack a proximate cause. And what is the proximate cause for rapture? It should be said gladness. This is pamoja in Pali. This is happiness in the Dhamma. What are you guys here for? What have you been doing for the last 10 days? Understanding the Dhamma, practicing, developing your sila, making the right effort. So the right effort causes the mind to be Oh, I'm getting the hang of this, the self-confidence, the joy in the Dhamma, the joy in doing this. That brings up the joy in meditation. That brings up then 
the tranquility that brings up the comfort and happiness that brings up the collectedness that brings up the equanimity then that brings up disenchantment that brings up dispassion that brings up cessation but let's say you don't have gladness either then what do you do I say, bhikkhus, that gladness too has a proximate cause. It does not lack a proximate cause. And what is the proximate cause for gladness? It should be said, faith, conviction. You all came here out of some kind of faith, the willingness and openness to see what this practice is about. That's the first level. Now, as you cycle through this process, you will go through cycles as you have each attainment, as you have each cessation. Then the faith will be stronger. There will be experiential confidence in the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. In that process, then you do the right effort. When you do the right effort, you experience relief from the hindrances. Because of that, there is gladness. From that gladness, there is joy. From that joy, there is tranquility. From that tranquility, there is comfort. From that comfort, there is collectedness. From that collectedness, there is equanimity. From that equanimity, there is disenchantment. From that disenchantment, there is dispassion. From that dispassion, there is cessation. And then the knowledge. But let's say you don't have faith. Then what happens? I say bhikkhus that faith too has a proximate cause. It does not lack a proximate cause. And what is the proximate cause for faith? It should be said, suffering. You haven't suffered enough. You see, when somebody experiences suffering, two things can happen. Either they find a way out which is where the samvega comes from. Or, they just continue on with their lives. Until there's an actual pain point, people won't change. That's why it makes no sense to go back into the real world and start to evangelize this practice. When people actually experience and see for themselves that, oh, this person is calm, non-agitated, what's going on with them? and they come to you, then you can say, hey, this is what I've been doing. Then if they're interested, they can check it out for themselves. But no point in being a Dhamma evangelist. Let your actions, let your words, let your thoughts be the inspiration. So this is transcendental dependent origination. There's more to this because then it goes into the mundane dependent origination. So I'll just go through that quickly. I say bhikkhus that suffering too has a proximate cause. It does not lack a proximate cause. And what is the proximate cause for suffering? It should be said birth. I say bhikkhus that birth too has a proximate cause. It does not lack a proximate cause. Lack a proximate cause. And what is the proximate cause for birth? It should be said habitual tendencies. I say bhikkhus that habitual tendencies too have a proximate cause. They do not lack a proximate cause. And what is the proximate cause for habitual tendencies? It should be said, you guys remember? 
clinging. I say because that clinging too has a proximate cause. It does not lack a proximate cause. And what is the proximate cause for clinging? Craving. I say bhikkhus that craving too has a proximate cause. It does not lack a, pro- lack a proximate cause. And what is the proximate cause for craving? It should be said? Feeling. Feeling and perception. For feeling, it should be said? What is the proximate cause of feeling? Contact. What is the proximate cause of contact? Six sense bases. What is the proximate cause of the six sense bases? Mentality, materiality. What is the proximate cause for mentality, materiality? Consciousness. What is the proximate cause for consciousness? Formations. What is the proximate cause for formations? Ignorance. So, thus because with ignorance as proximate cause, what comes to be? Formations come to be. With formations as proximate cause, consciousness comes to be. With consciousness as proximate cause, mentality, materiality. With mentality, materiality as cause, six sense bases. With six sense bases as cause, contact. With contact as cause, with feeling as cause, with craving as cause, with clinging as cause, with habitual tendencies as cause, with birth as cause, with suffering as cause. Let's see how how well you guys listen today. Faith. With faith as cause, gladness. With gladness as cause, rapture. With rapture as cause, tranquility. With tranquility as cause, sukha, comfort. With happiness. With happiness as cause? Concentration. With concentration as cause? Equanimity. With equanimity as cause? Disenchantment. With disenchantment as cause? With dispassion as cause? Cessation. This is the whole path. These are the whole of the Four Noble Truths. Just as bhikkhus, when rain pours down in thick droplets on a mountain top, the water flows down along the slope and fills the cleft, gullies and creeks. These being full, fill up the pools. These being full, fill up the lakes. These being full, fill up the streams. These being full, fill up the rivers. And these being full, fill up the great ocean. So too... In the same way, all of these fill up one after the other. So with ignorance, then comes formations, consciousness, nama rupa, and so on. So it just keeps going. So to understand where you are in your practice, to understand what you need to do, just understand the transcendental dependent origination. This is what you have been doing for the last nine days. Following the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is interwoven in that. The enlightenment factors are interwoven in that. Right effort is interwoven in that. All of the 37 requisites for enlightenment are interwoven in that.
But for simplicity's sake, just understand what is required in your meditation based on that, on that series of links of transcendental dependent origination. If you're having a problem with your meditation, go back one step. Develop that, then come back. This is how you do it. This is how you problem solve in your own meditation. This is how you troubleshoot your meditation. Now there is another sutta similar to this, which are 10.1, 10 10.2, 10.3, 10.4, 10.5, Anguta and Nikaya. They're all the same, but I'm going to just read 10.1. It's very similar to this, but there's a little bit of a difference, and you'll see what I'm talking about. So this is from, uh, let's see, Anguttara Nikai 10.1, which is called, What Purpose? Thus have I heard, on one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Savati in Jetta's Grove, Anatha Pindika's Park. Then the Venerable Ananda approached the Blessed One, paid homage to him, sat down to one side, and said to him, Bhante, what is the purpose and benefit of wholesome, virtuous behavior? Ananda, the purpose and benefit of wholesome, virtuous behavior is non-regret. Keeping your precepts leads to non-regret, a mind that is not agitated, a mind without any regret or remorse. And what, Bhante, is the purpose and benefit of non-regret? The purpose and benefit of non-regret is gladness, pamoja. So here, in the first sequence, we saw faith leads to gladness. But that faith requires effort. What is that effort? Right effort of letting go, where you have enough energy. And what is the energy coming from? Keeping the precepts. Your mind becomes purified at one level when you keep the precepts. Your intentions become purified when you keep the precepts. From there, there is non-regret. From that non-regret, there is pamoja. And what bhante is the purpose and benefit of pamoja? The, the purpose and benefit of pamoja is rapture, joy. And what bhante is the purpose and benefit of rapture? The purpose and benefit of rapture is tranquility. And what bhante is the purpose and benefit of tranquility? The purpose and benefit of tranquility is sukha. And what bhante is the purpose and benefit of sukha? Concentration. And what bhante is the purpose and benefit of concentration? Equanimity. And what bhante is the purpose and benefit of equanimity? Disenchantment. And what is the purpose of disenchantment? Dispassion. And what is the purpose and benefit of dispassion? Cessation. Thus, Ananda, 
The purpose and benefit of wholesome virtuous behavior is non-regret. The purpose and benefit of non-regret is pamoja. The purpose and benefit of pamoja is joy or rapture. The purpose and benefit of rapture is tranquility. The purpose and benefit of tranquility is happiness or sukha. The purpose and benefit of sukha is concentration. The purpose and benefit of concentration is the knowledge and vision of things as they really are, equanimity. The purpose and benefit of equanimity is disenchantment. The purpose of equanimity is dispassion. And the purpose and benefit of dispassion is the knowledge and vision of liberation. Thus, Ananda, wholesome, virtuous behavior progressively leads to the foremost. That's it. That's the path. That's all you have to do when you get off retreat now. Make sure you keep the precepts. So, you know, Bhante would say, Bhante would say, you know, if you take care of the Dhamma, the Dhamma will take care of you. Which means, if you keep your precepts, then everything else falls into place. Just keeping your precepts, your mind remains pure. Your mind remaining pure, your intentions remain pure. Your intentions remaining pure, you won't get caught up or catch yourself in doing things that cause regret. And because of that, your mind remains steady. Maybe not fully steady, but steady enough to start the process of meditation, of samadhi. From there, that leads to the knowledge and vision of things as they are, which is insight and wisdom. So the tools that you have now, the loving kindness, the compassion, the empathetic joy, the uh, equanimity, the forgiveness, the six R's. This is stuff you can apply in every moment. You find yourself stuck in a situation that can aggravate the mind. What do you do? Six R. Bring up equanimity. You find a situation where a person comes and berates you and gets angry at you. What do you do? Before you react, what do you do? Six R. Take a couple moments. Bring up loving kindness. Bring up compassion. Then respond. You find yourself in a situation where you find envy coming up. What do you do? Recognize that. Let go of that. Bring up empathetic joy. You find yourself in a situation where you're holding on to something. You feel terrible about something. What do you do? Forgiveness. So this is practical Dhamma. This is how you cultivate the mind of an awakened being. Generate loving kindness. Keep the precepts, generate loving-kindness, generate compassion, generate mudita, generate upeka. Be patient, be forgiving. Now, you know, you're in, you're in a retreat setting. 
it's much easier to do these things. Now the real test is what you do off retreat. That's a lot of times what people ask me, what do I do off retreat? And I say there is never any off retreat. It's just a mentality. You can still be on retreat while off retreat. It'll be a little more challenging, that's all. But make it like a game. Be like a little child, make it like a game. Now you understand what happens when you take things personally. Now you understand what happens when you identify with situations. Now you understand how craving arises. In recognizing that, you're able to let go. You're able to 6R. And as you do this, other people become motivated, inspired by that. Instead of continuing the old patterns of an eye for an eye, he said that to me, she said that to me, I'm going to get back at them. How could they say that to me? Why do they do that? Instead of all of those habitual tendencies, you can now recognize them, let them go, and apply the Dhamma. Be a peacemaker. De-escalate situations. Be more aware. Be more mindful. Be more attentive. That's the key. Attention to everything. Relaxed attention to everything. Not trying to focus and figure out things. In the relaxing of it, everything presents itself. You just have to be there, present. That's all I have now. I'm done. What has to be done has been done. What had to be said has been said. Any questions? Hello. Uh, the other day you spoke, uh, or you mentioned that you would teach some things that some teachers don't uh, encourage you to speak about, but you were going to address them. Did you address them? Yeah, I did. Okay. I was just curious. <laughs> and which, so which were those? Uh, Majjhima Nikaya 43 and 44, talking about how this process of cessation happens mm. okay. and what happens after cessation. Uh, this might just be my perspective. At, oh, did I? Did I say? Oh, sorry. <laughs> this uh, might just be my uh, lack of sufficient knowledge about other traditions. But 
it seems like a lot of meditation traditions are kind of hush-hush about the path, particularly, well, I, the one that I'm more uh, I was familiar with as a kid was Zen, so Zen in particular, but even then some other traditions, like they don't want to quite tell you the full story before you, maybe you have to be like, a couple of years into your practice, what do you think that's accurate, and why do you think they do that, or why is that? I I can only speak from how I would understand it, which is that you know I think not sharing everything. Like I didn't really share with you guys, and I'm not going to share with you guys what happens when you see dependent origination, because that can influence how the mind sees it or looks for it. But you have to then come back and tell the guide, like, this is what happened. And then the guide from their experience can confirm this is how things happened. So for that reason, I think it's not about, like, keeping the teachings secret in that sense. I think it's about, because here, basically, we've just discussed the whole path. For the last seven or eight days, we've been discussing the Eightfold Path, how things happen, dependent origination, basically... You know, how to let go of your consciousness from one thing to the other with when we did 143 and so on. So the only thing I, I would uh, not discuss is because I don't want to influence your minds. I want you guys to experience that and then come back and, and report. So I think based on that intention, maybe that's the intention of other traditions. Just one other thing. Uh, are there any other traditions that have this specific relaxing step, or this specific yeah. relaxing of the hindrances? I think it's very similar to the the practicalities of Mahamudra and especially Dzogchen. Resting awareness. Possibly even Shikantaza. Yes. Yes, definitely. Because you're just watching mind, you know, doing what it's doing without getting engaged in it. Uh, Shikantaza, just sitting. The Zen practice. Daria, I'm really admiring your compassion while answering the questions. So, <laughs> my first question is, what things anyone should, should reflect before posing a question, uh, maybe Dhamma question or a question. These are the meta questions. Not meta, but M-E-T-A. Yes. Please go ahead. Because uh, many, if uh, the questions are hypothetical, it just causes all intellectual debate and deviation from the practical application. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, something we didn't really discuss in the beginning of the retreat. But yeah, I think that's something that's important to understand. When you ask a question, and I think this you guys have been doing pretty well with that, which is asking a question because you're experiencing something and you need clarification on what it is you're experiencing or how to get to the next step. So be practical in your questions. The theory aspect, the hypotheticals, the uh, what if this happens or what if that happens, that leads into speculation and intellectual intellectualizing of things. So try to stay practical with your questions.
how should one answer any question that is asked to us either mundane or dhamma uh, maybe dhamma questions sometimes i feel that uh, people just want to learn without going to a retreat from our experience or they just want to provoke or debate something which either won't help them <laughs> or yeah. and uh, the other part i read in one sutta where i think the buddha had told one bhikkhu to in fact elaborate more so that people would benefit so yeah to be precise yeah if you find that you're getting yourself caught into debates stop don't get into debates then the mind of defending what it is that you're clinging to in terms of a viewpoint or the dhamma or whatever gets in and then dependent origination and then causes suffering in the end so any question that's asked to you you take some time 4 or 5 seconds let the mind absorb that question and then let the mind come up with it let your intuition guide you and then the question will be or the answer will be um answering maybe not the question but the heart of the question sometimes people will ask questions not knowing what they're asking but your intuition will know and penetrate to the core of what it is they're asking and the answer will still be an answer that they're looking for and next is uh, how to discern whether to apply algorithms or intuition while taking any decision I like this question. This is a really good question. You know, that's what I was talking about earlier. The dhamma is like filled with algorithms, if you think about it. Right? Because it's got everything. It's got the eightfold path, it's got dependent origination, the four noble truths. If this happens, that happens. It's got causality, conditionality. It's got cessation. It's got every answer for every particular question. So, but your intuition will be the the guiding force to see if in the in the memory banks of your mind through your experience if you can bring that up and then use that as a answer to the question or if it doesn't your intuition will still guide you so always use your intuition the algorithms are set there but the intuition is that which is able to sift through the library and say this is the answer and then gives the answer So always go with the intuition. But also add that uh, you could examine the intention behind that action. So you could see like is this coming from a place of craving or is it going to uh is it coming from a wholesome intention that's going to, you know, truly help myself or other people. Sometimes when people ask me questions, I don't give the same answer to that question. And sometimes I give a non-answer too. <laughs> so, yeah, it's basically even if you go to the memory banks of your mind, it's not like you're par- like if you're using your intuition, 
it's not like you're just using the same old you know rhetoric of whatever it is that you keep saying and the other thing is this is the key if you want to be a good guide if you want to be a good teacher you should be able to answer the same question a hundred times There have been times, you've noticed, when we've been in retreats in Dhammasukha, where people will apparently ask similar questions that were asked before. And the question was asked to me, which is, don't you get tired of those questions? No, because I don't notice that the questions have been asked before. I just listen to the question and answer the question. That's it. It's like someone hit play on a recording of Delson. He gives the same answer, sometimes the same answer. But it's with the same enthusiasm, even though it was asked. (laughs) (laughs) So this is what we're planning to do, actually, right? We're going to be recording all of my answers. And if somebody asks a question, just hit play. (laughs) That's it. Yeah, in in 2030, there's just going to be a hologram of Delson. Just go through the library of stock answers. (laughs) That's the algorithm we're working on now. Will you please go back more into dispassion, equanimity? Because there's something in, in my mind, as I haven't parsed into it the way that the Buddha has, I just think of equanimity being, yeah, I'm equanimous with everything. I, everything is neutral and I don't have any responses or reactions to right. anything. Right. That is also, yeah, equanimity is the knowledge and vision of things as they are, which means... Just seeing things as they are. When you have equanimity, you don't add stuff to it. Whether it's painful or pleasant or neutral, you just see things as being, you know. You might even notice in your own mind, it's like this commentator saying, oh, this is a pleasant feeling. Oh, this is a painful feeling. But beyond that, there's no like holding on to or trying to push away. That's the real equanimity where it's just like unaffected by these things. When you have that equanimity, when you have that in your mind and you're just watching quiet mind, if you truly have that equanimity, stuff that bombards you, sankaras that keep coming up, it just flows right through your attention. Your intention is just here in quiet mind. That naturally builds up the disenchantment, which says like, all right, I'm tired of seeing these things, so I'm not going to even like look up anymore. I'm just going to be here. And that naturally then leads to that dispassion, which is like, that's the thing. Like, it's just only looking at that. Now, that's different from being single-pointed or one-pointed. It's more like the mind is just resting there. It's like being able to sleep through anything. You know, being able to sleep, you know, there's sounds here and there and whatever it is, but you're still able to just sleep. Because your mind is just wanting to sleep the same way your intention and mind is just wanting to stay there so these things naturally happen and you will see like a little bit of an overlap in between equanimity and disenchantment and in between disenchantment and dispassion but it starts with first having the collected mind let's say having a mind that stays with its object from there equanimity naturally arises And then I'll just 
put out there one thing uh, from my personal experience, which has been very brief with Twim, just, just several months. And, I mean, your example, the way that you speak and share the Dhamma and the teachings and the practice, they all go together so nicely and so well. And then we have other examples besides yourself of other people and students who share that they've had different experiences that you speak about, that the, the Buddha spoke about 2,500 years ago. And it all just feels so nice that the mind partly says, this is too good to be true. <laughs> <laughs> because it's just incredible to think that this practice, which is so simple, that you can teach to people in 10 days and they can experience things which previous to not very long ago I didn't realize was even possible in this day and age and no one in the West that I'm aware of is really speaking of these things actually occurring. We speak about knowledge, we speak about you know learning and things but actual changing who you are at a core level, that's not really discussed. And I find it really incredible that something this simple which was taught to hundreds of thousands of people at that time and spread through all these different countries, could have gotten changed into all of these different practices which are still under the umbrella of Buddhism, which also bring about great benefit, it seems, but last for tens of years or you know maybe never come to these attainments. Meanwhile, like... It doesn't seem like most anyone else is teaching this very simple practice. It, the mind is just like, this. it just seems incredible that, that this could happen. Different strokes for different folks. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, this is just one practice that you're welcome to keep practicing and that's what I keep saying. It's just welcome, try it out, see for yourself. And if it works for you, do it. But if it not, if it doesn't, keep looking. That's really it. Thank you all for your example and sharing. Yeah, taking that forward, I would uh, take this opportunity on this basis to thank you, Mitananda, sir, and... Uh, Listen, sir, that uh, the way it has been put, uh, Venerable Metananda's uh, style of giving examples, quoting stories, giving data, which we as such like more, and your way of explaining these things in a, such a simplified and practical manner. Because if you really read the book, it's like, if you read for the first time, you just can't make out. This is my first experience of any sort of retreat or to exposure to Buddhism at all. So I really thank you for that. So putting in such a lucid manner and in a practical terms also as we would be going back together in it. I mean, this is the reality. Now we'll be going in a perceived reality tomorrow. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it will be a totally different thing. But yeah, so how to deal with that? So that was... Uh, are really encouraging. And I just got a quote sort of mine in my mind today afternoon when I was just lying down that uh, Buddha is always out there. We have to find our own Buddha inside. So that probably how it will go f from now on. Yeah. And 
Coming uh, to, I would also like to thank the support staff because they would have, I don't think Mr. Praveenji is here and uh, uh, Saurabhji has been a good help, coordinating everyone. And the kitchen staff. Uh, oh yeah, we can't there, forget the kitchen yeah, staff. There is always food for thought, but food for stomach was always there. Yeah. And uh, evening time was the best time of meditation practice. I would be going with a bowl of soup and... Uh, with no hard feelings to those who were taking the food, but I would be looking at the sandwiches there <laughs> and me with the soup here. And then I think the meditation practice started. So those, it is just a sandwich, don't perceive it. <laughs> don't have formations, let go, let go. So, so by the, and this is really, just look at the person taking the sandwich there and I just, I just never fast in my life. Uh, only if I don't get food when I was working as a student, but otherwise I, I'm not into fasting of any sorts. But yeah, this was a good experience. And uh, yeah, that was a, a real good feeling. And uh, I would like to share one uh, small scientific uh, experiment. What the bells caused initially. We have that morning bell of breakfast, mm -hmm. uh, afternoon bell of lunch, and the evening bell of soup, so-called dinner. So, in uh, the Paolo was a scientist, we had this study in uh, way back in first MBBS and uh, this is called a conditioned reflex, right? So, what he did, he took uh, dogs as samples and this was a salivation reflex they were studying. Mm -hmm. So, they used to offer him food and salivation was induced because the dogs were hungry, so they would naturally salivate. So, what he started doing is, he just, whenever they offered food, he also started ringing the bell. Right? So he continued doing for that for some time and one fine day he removed the food, only the bell mm. and then also they salivated. <laughs> so that remembered, uh, I mean I was reminiscent of the same thing of the bells ringing every time and it, it took me back to Paolo, <laughs> that Paolo found it way back. <laughs> Anyways, uh, it was a very good experience and coming to that, uh, I've gone, got my own sort of bit of data. Right, so uh, I'm a little bit clinging to heart rates. I would say that word is more clinging only. <laughs> so what I, I generally put on my <clears throat> uh, watch 24 hours other than bathing or sort of thing, so it continuously monitors my heart rate. So a lot of people know what is resting heart rate, but still I will elaborate what is resting heart rate. Resting heart rate is your heart rate when you're very rested. So for example, after you get up after afternoon nap, you're absolutely calm, with no tension and you, mark, uh, you measure heart rate, that's a resting heart rate. Or you're just reading a book and calm without any stimulation, say like watching a movie, that's not resting. So that's resting heart rate. So I was monitoring my uh, resting heart rates throughout these days and I started monitoring from last Monday. I didn't monitor on Saturday, Sunday because those were the relaxed, I mean we were coming out of the stress of traveling. And what happened is uh, I took my average heart rates and uh, the impact just before I came, so I was in a good, I just work out and I have a pretty normal routine schedule, nothing ups and downs. So average heart rate has gone down by about 10, which is, I mean, a big number mm -hmm. for me. So that has gone significantly down, that's the average heart rate. The other factor is whenever you measure day, day heart rate and the night heart, resting heart rate, night you are the most relaxed. 
So generally, the night resting heart rates are the minimum. See, your heart rate is a minimum when you are resting absolutely at night. So day heart rates went down, night heart rates went down. First three days, the day heart rates were still higher than the night heart rates. I was struggling with the meditation thing. Uh, you would be knowing that. And and then after fourth fifth day, I got into that groove. And after the fourth fifth day, what happened is. the day heart rate resting heart rate was lesser than the night heart resting heart rate which i found <laughs> amazing i mean i have got my data i can just is 56 57 night 55 56 at night 52 55 at night so the day while meditating the heart rate went even below than what it went at night so that was maybe i will keep more track of it but yeah that was a fantastic objective data yeah. right uh, this when we are talking we are talking lot of uh subject to data also like what we see what we feel but this is what is objective as far as and that's what i i talked with you about why don't you get some good data on yourself taking fluids and monitoring the vitals and everything when you go in that uh, nirodha feeling that do a yeah. fantastic yeah because today uh, the people believe more of data and studies rather than tell tell things like suttas and um, so it's one thing, even i am of that cat together so that yeah. i won't Uh, be objective of doing that but yeah. yeah it's a good thing if we have good studies that will be one way which people will be inclined more than yeah. rather this uh, spread of mouth always works but yeah still yeah so there was a fantastic which uh, thing uh, i discussed with in the in the discussion of that this was one thing which i was amazed to see that my day resting heart rate was going below the night resting heart rates and then questions yes <laughs> <laughs> so and uh, the object of meditation see when we go back again say normally i practice i don't get the time to then one fine day again sit down and practice so should it always go from uh the uh, first factor is uh, joy i mean the giving happiness metta sorry metta yeah. then compassion and uh, then joy and then equanimity or you can just paraglide to the stage which you want that was one when we do when we do this here we are in a flow we do it every day so we can directly jump to i mean the deeper flows but when yeah. we start restart after some time so should it be like this only so when you let's say you have have a you have a gap in your practice then start with the metta sending out the metta in the six directions and let it gradually progress through that and you might find even if you start with the metta it might just as you said paraglide skip over some of the stages and go directly into nothingness and equanimity or even uh tranquil mind or or quiet mind but always start with metta when you start out the practice now if you're in the flow let's say you maintain a consistent practice which is you're practicing an hour or two a day and so on then just when you're sitting down ask the mind where does it want to start does it feel like compassion today does it feel like equanimity today does it feel like joy and the mind will then just start to send out that particular brahma vihara for the first 20 30 minutes that might happen and then you go into quiet mind now the thing is as you get into daily life there's going to be a lot more bombardment of sensory stimulation So maybe the first 30 minutes is going to be just taking out all the garbage from the mind. That's okay. It's a process. After that you get into the groove of things 
and then you continue with your practice. Another thing which I uh, would want to ask that uh, whatever we say, we are genetically quite different. A person may be anxious, a person may be subtle, a person may be happy-go-lucky, even from the birth. The child does show the traits. So, can the object of meditation be customized according to personality traits? Yes, yes. This is why the Buddha had the Kamatana, right? Which is like the different, 40 different meditation, at least 40 different kind of meditation subjects or objects. So for a certain kind of mindset, he would kind of like prescriptions. He would prescribe, okay, you do this kind of practice. For another kind of mindset, he would say, you do this kind of practice and so on. So yes, it can be customized according to one's behavior, one's personality traits, one's movement of mind, what kind of mind they have. They're more anxious they're prone to disp- uh, depression, they're uh, more irritated or more speculative, and so on and so forth. Yes? This is, I don't know if this is in the suttas exactly, but I know it's within the Dhamma, which is like, uh, you know, for example, if somebody has a speculative mindset, then Anapanasati is good. If somebody has a more irritated mindset, then Metta is good. Uh, you know, and if somebody has more agitation, then, you know, equanimity is good, and, and so on and so forth. So just search K-A-M-M-A-T-T-H-A-N-A. K-A-M-M-A-T-T-H-A-N-A. But I think best would be a teacher guiding what exactly we need. I mean, that would be the... We should tell ourselves and share our experience. And then I think, as you did, at least in my case, I know uh, how it helps. So I think that would be a better option rather than we seeing, studying something and trying to implement it. Yeah. 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 And one more general question. Are there any uh, guidelines for child upbringing in suttas? Or say, a lot of cultures have a lot of things for children to do, right? They say the children should go to Gurukul or children should do and do this prayers or do this and that, everything, right? So are there any suttas or guidelines which are specifically targeted for parents who are bringing up the children for this thing? Yes, yes. In the Sutta Diganakaya 31, uh, which is the advice to lay people, it talks about the different relationships, how a parent should treat their child, how a child should treat their parent, a parent's responsibility to a child, a child's responsibility to a parent, how uh, you should treat uh, your spouse and how they should treat you, how you should treat your employees. So there's a whole like list of stuff in terms of relationships and then even about financial advice, how do you save, what do you invest in, and all these other kinds of things. So, but that's very general advice that the Buddha gives, and the basis of that is making sure that the child understands the five precepts at the very basic. And also, um, like uh, for example, the Buddha, uh, his son, Rahula, 
he was a monk at a very young age. And uh, there's a, it's in the suttas actually, it's in Majjhima Nikaya. Uh, I'll tell you the number after telling you the, the story. There the Buddha, uh, now we don't know whether it was because Rahula was telling lies, but what the Buddha was saying is, you know, he gave an example of like, he took a, a bowl of water, a large bowl of water, and he said, if this water was dirty, would you wash your feet with it? And so on. In the same way, if your mind is dirty, you won't be able to do anything with it. And then he kicked away the, the, the bucket of water or whatever to show as an example that this is what would happen if your mind is dirty, you would suffer a certain kind of consequences. So the idea is, you know, being able to explain to a child action and consequence so causality and conditionality, being able to explain in very, very uh, mundane terms. Like, if you were to tell a lie, what would happen? What would, be the, what would you feel like if you told a lie? If you did this, what would you feel like? So guiding the child in that way. So that sutta, I'll tell you. Because um, there's a few suttas that he has with Rahula. That's the one. I'm trying to find the number. Oh yeah, 62. Majjhima Nikaya 62. Let me make sure that's the right one. No, actually, it's not that one. That one, he shows him the different uh, four elements and things like that. But there is one sutta. Chula? Let me see. Yeah, let's see. Yeah, you can Google it, but just search for Rahula and uh, telling lies. Yeah, Chula, Chula Rahula Vada Sutta, actually, that one is, no, that one is about, he, he guides him all the way to Arahatship. Yeah, no, 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 that's not the one. That, that Sutta, the Chula Rahula Vada Sutta, that's Majjhima Nikaya 147. That's much later. He finds out that the mind of Rahula is ripe enough to attain Arahatship, so he guides him through it. It's here somewhere.
Anyway, my, my point being that uh, the Buddha did explain to his son, you know, the consequences of what would happen if your mind was this way or if your mind was that way. Sixty. It could be sixty-one. Yes, it's sixty-one. This is called uh, Ambalatika Vada Sutta. That's the one. Advice to Rahula at Ambalatika. Yeah. Majjhimikai sixty-one. So there's some examples of how to guide children. Oh, you have another question? Yeah. And a uh, little bit carrying that forward, if there is some grievous, uh, um, say like uh, stealing something or maybe child, maybe adult, is there or any role of any sort of punishment other than assertiveness uh, given by Buddha or not? Some, some I'm not, uh, repeat it, say not the first time, first, second, third, right? Hmm. And Still, how you... You mean for a child? Child, uh, adult, I mean bigger child, teenager somewhat, say. Yeah. Or even an adult who is recurrently indulging in certain activities which are grossly uh, negligent. Then other than compassion and... Uh, sometimes, having, and this is difficult to say, but sometimes you just have to let them face the consequences and suffer the consequences in order for them to learn the lesson. So if they were stealing and they got caught, they have to suffer the consequences of getting caught. Or if they've been indulging in alcohol or something like that, then they have to know the consequences. Like they will know the consequences of drinking too much alcohol in the morning. <laughs> but sometimes it's not enough. But yes, as parents, you have to be there to guide them and say, hey, what you're doing is, you know. And yeah, you as parents have the ability to punish them. Whatever that punishment might be, obviously it shouldn't be in a way that causes them to feel like they're being, you know, hurt or harmed or something. But some kind of punishment, you know, that maybe takes away their privileges. Those kinds of things as well. And that's what I wanted to ask you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think for meditation, you know. What was the youngest that Bhante taught? Do you remember? What, what was the age of that, those two children? I remember it was seven. Was it seven? I think yeah. that's the youngest that they were saying one could learn. And there was an 11-year-old that had a lot of success with the practice. Right. So. But I think generally, you know, maybe at around the age of 10, 11, 12, like that, as they start getting into preteen and teenage that's when they're like starting to interact with the world and like wondering what's going on here. Yeah. Also, you, you don't want to like make it a chore for them at all. It's like yeah. they might see you practicing and get curious about it. Yeah. Or you could uh, do a bedtime ritual like sending loving kindness to your family members together. Uh, Bonte would recommend that with kids. Uh, my my friend and my assistant, he has. Uh, he deals with children a lot because he babysits them and he has, uh, uh, you know, grandchildren of his own who are very young. They're like six months, 
one year, two year, that kind of thing. But even kids who are like five or six years old, he would take care. He'd be taking care of them, and he'd be meditating, and they would wonder what he's doing. And then after a few weeks, they would come and sit with him and start meditating. You know, and then they would be curious, like, "What do you do? What is it you do?" Now the one-year-old that's there. Uh, every time she comes to his house, she sees the Buddha, the Buddha statue, and she sees the Mind Without Craving book, and she's able to make a connection, even though it's a different angle. So every, it's become a ritual now. Every time she visits the house, first thing she's got to see is the Buddha statue and touch it, and then see the book, and then do her play. Thank you. Very often you come across a question and you just don't find an answer in the, in the books. Hmm. The content, the table of contents are not very helpful like we just saw just yeah. now. So is the index at the end. These in, the, all these books, the index is not so good. So right. Can you suggest any index where, let's say you want to search for a sutta which has got this subject or this, this topic? Or yes, this yes. Then how do you go? Suttacentral.net I found to be very helpful. It's like the Google of suttas. Okay. Yeah. You search for you can search by topic, or you can search by terms, and it'll take you to all the suttas which have that term. It's very helpful. I used to see this thing called suttacentral.net. Access to insight. Access to insight is also a good resource. It's still not so. Yeah, Sutta Central is a little bit, I would say, more like Google in that sense, and you can search by terms and you can search by concepts. And then you, like for example, you want to know about the five aggregates, you want to know about the five hindrances, you click there and it'll give you all of the major suttas that discuss that particular um, topic. So Sutta Central, S-U-T-T-A-C-E-N-T-R-A-L, suttacentral.net, N-E-T. Didn't you have another book coming out soon? Actually, they've come out already. Oh. Yeah. So there's, uh, well, actually what happened is uh, David Johnson was very eager for the Dependent Origination books to come out. And they are in their unedited form. So this is like the first draft of it, and he's just gone, gone ahead and published it. So people can go search for those books, read it, if you find typos or if you find things like you're unclear about, send us an email. That's going to help us to refine it. But he just wanted it out there because we're going to have the Dependent Origination Workshop in, in May so people can start to look at it. And, that, and he's putting, well, indirectly, I, I, it's just a joke, but he's indirectly putting pressure on me to finish craving. So now that the, the, chap, the book on, uh, on uh, birth, the, the book on, well, the book on suffering, on birth, on being, and on clinging, those are out. Craving is still missing. So I'm, I'm working on it, guys. I'm working on it. Yeah, they're available on Amazon.in. They're available on Flipkart. They're available on everywhere, wherever you search. Amazon in every country. And uh, Kindle version and um, hard uh, soft cover, yeah.
Yeah, so these books that we're talking about, like Mind Without Craving is uh, what you guys read now, but this one is like an in-depth uh, discussion on each of the links of dependent origination. What I wanted to do was create just one book on dependent origination, but then what happened is as I was re writing each chapter, each chapter became a book of its own. So that's what's going on right now. Yes, we are planning that. We're planning that and we're planning a braille version or a version where even people who can't, you know. So it's in the works somewhere. And then another quick one. Uh, are you supposed to smile during quiet mind? Sometimes what happens is the smile kind of softens or disappears. So when you do find a distraction, at that point you just re relax and come back to the object. Don't have to do the whole sequence. Just relax and come back. You want to start first five, ten minutes with radiating a little bit, even if it means you want to ra you're going to radiate in all directions for for first five minutes. Then allow the mind to settle down into quiet mind. The reason is because it balances your energy. If you get a quiet mind immediately, there's a tendency for mind to become sloth and torpor. I start with the entire process of six directions and get into that, and then I abruptly or sometimes take a break from the meditation for like a few minutes, and then just quickly get into it. That's when I. That's fine. That's fine. Uh, I think uh, a little while ago there was a, a small discussion that after we go back and how do we perhaps put everything, uh, how we use all these tools and use XR and other things. My take on this is that uh, for, for myself that uh, I have heard so much, so much, all very good. And uh, real life most of the times is very spontaneous. On the uh, at the moment, you don't start thinking that uh, how yeah. really. You know, in short, I hope you all understand that real life is very spontaneous. Yes. When I go back, this is uh, my uh, own uh, view on this. I let everything that I have heard settle down in at the bottom of my mental lake. Uh, that's not to say that just put it aside. I'm conscious, I, and that's how I imagine that everything is settled down and at the right time, if you are simultaneously following the other, other steps in life, practice and also the steps that can be easily followed, mindfulness, etc., then the right uh, input will bubble up and will help you uh, at that point of time, but I don't think there's a con there is a conscious way of, you know, every right. time. Am I right? Uh, yes, sorry? yes. The only thing is that you want, to you want to have the ability to apply what you've learned in as many situations as you can. Yeah, there are, uh, this I'm talking of the, just the ongoing life, but there are, of course, you are, whenever you are confronted with a situation where you have time to think, contemplate, get back, 
there you can no doubt use many of these tools right and you know but and if i was to boil down to to simplify everything so that you don't have to be like what do i do and you know do i bring up this or that in any situation where you're met with difficult challenging possibilities if you just remember to relax yeah. that's it just relax in that moment then allow things to happen it'll be fine and may i also say uh, something on a lighter note if it's allowed i thought i was it was said that questions should be carefully asked <laughs> <laughs> so like you said it and i'm sure for everybody it has been a great retreat and for me also personally it has been a great experience in terms of my practice in terms of my learnings i think uh, on my meditation path i have I have really gone ahead significantly you know my process has been speeded up because of the experience and the techniques that we learned from you and uh, both of you have been excellent teachers and both of you will be on my list of gratitude uh, for the future and I'll share my today's experience for the last 3 4 days I'm having good meditations today morning also I had a great meditation and then i went down i went to the washroom and as i was just turning back and trying to come out my head suddenly hit the top beam of the door so when it happens like this you boom mm. that's a moment of awakening <laughs> <laughs> everything else disappears and my goodness there is just <laughs> so i also had my moment of awakening and i realized <laughs> life is real <laughs> and once in a while it will knock you down yes so you better be careful about your mindfulness practice very good and just last just light comment i have great uh, uh, respect and admiration for all those fellow participants who only had soup for dinner yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on the contrary i suffered from temptation you never use this word here and slightly overeat because overeat because the food was so delicious so thank you <laughs> all the best to everybody i wish you great uh, going ahead thank you actually getting that thing one thing forward uh, one data of mine was that uh, sunday was a day when there was a lot of good stuff for me which yeah. was in the serving yeah. so i had lot of uh, uh, i think it was sunny side up and uh, fries and, and afternoon there was some bundi raita and cakes so that day for diet thing my my resting heart rate was quite high significantly till the evening session of the meditation <laughs> <laughs> so i was thinking that maybe these high high fat high uh, sugar foods increase my heart rate i think should uh, i think uh, i should need more insight on that but yeah that was one day when the stats changed a bit right. and that was a day when i ate too much <laughs> and uh, lastly uh, i would also like to thank this whole crowd and uh, i'm not joking but uh, on the fourth or fifth day I, my all meta objects had gone off all the mountains all the views everything had gone off so i was wondering what i should take object and literally for two sessions i took meta as all of us and i could see everyone's face i i'm not in the whatsapp group we've joined late since only last few days we joined 
so i we do, i we didn't know who or all coming by the whatsapp chats everything but it's not just i'm saying i could see everyone's face in my mind and that was the metta for that day that two sessions that's so, wonderful thank you all <laughs> continuing the uh, thanksgiving thing <laughs> Uh, I would really like to thank the whole team, uh, Sir, Metananda Sir, and uh, one of the, I have no uh, questions, uh, one of the hind- byproduct of hindrances uh, that I came across today morning only, it's a small write-up, I have never written in my life, like, like this I have never written in, I don't know how it came in my mind, so I would like to share it with you. <clears throat> Keep an eye on the eye. says delson sir keep an eye on the eye says delson sir when i think too much about myself when i think too much about myself it's just a concept says delson sir <laughs> what do you do when you close your eyes and you have so many thoughts trafficking in your head what do you do when you close your eyes and you have so many thoughts trafficking in your head these are all hindrances just six are them says delson sir <laughs> i didn't even know i didn't even know that you have to have an empty mind to be mindful i didn't even know that you have to have an empty mind to be mindful cessation is the best says delson sir <laughs> i don't know whether i will get to the stage of nibbana any time in my life i don't know whether i will get to the stage of nibbana any time in my life but the deer park retreat was surely 8.5th jana dear delson sir <laughs> thank you so much sir i i have never written in my life wonderful never. i don't know how it came <laughs> thank you sir thank you hi so before my question let me continue the echo the thank yous uh as both you and metadan metananda sir know that uh, there were some things that unlocked for me during our conversations and the reading of the book uh, i think that's amazing i don't think i look back uh, in a way my life would have changed if i continued the process so thank you okay so now my question is around fetters uh, so when i was reading i noticed that uh, in the attainment the fetters are different in the four uh rather the four levels four four mm-hmm. right and uh, my question was if i am not into nibbana i am not really interested in getting attainment but i want to get rid of certain fetters and let's say conceit which is an arahant fetter to get rid of right <laughs> does it go sequentially or can it jump like uh the understanding in the sutras is it is sequential oh, okay. okay yeah you can't pick and choose unfortunately okay. Okay. all right so you have to be in a hunt to yeah. uh, completely get rid of can see there's no other way right anyone else Oh, wow. <laughs> I saved my questions. <laughs> Could you speak about um like this enchantment, detachment, um 
and this passion in relation to others. Like when you're speaking to a person, it doesn't sound great if you, you know you get this passionate about them. <laughs> <laughs> when you're speaking to a person, or you're speaking about them. You're speaking to them. So is it the idea? Is it the idea of them that I'm becoming dispassionate about? <laughs> yeah, you don't want disenchantment or dispassion towards a person. You always want loving kindness and compassion towards them. So. But the idea of the person and everything else, you become dispassionate about your mind's reactions to how the person is talking or how the person is causing you to react. Not the person itself. Okay. That makes more sense. Um, and also, how does an arahat relate to others? I know this is probably going to be a paradox, but... So... It's basically the same. Just no more craving and conceit. You know, an arha can tell jokes. An arha can interact. An arha can, uh, can laugh, can uh, empathize, can send compassion, can um, even play practical jokes, you know, things like that. You know, just be a normal person. Only difference is there's no more craving. There's no more identification with that process. And in relation to, say, like love, or obviously like romantic love, friendship love, all the, the love that we know is not there. Um, yeah, I was wondering how you relate to that. You know, there's this uh, movie... It's an Indian movie. It's one of the, the few Indian movies I recommend. Uh, it's called PK. And in that, there's a song. It's, love is a waste of time. So, I mean, romantic love. I mean, you know, are you asking me personally or just in general? Yeah, it's, there's no... There's no no interest in all of that because they just see that as being, you know, it's the romantic love gives rise to creation of relationships. And when you have two people together, there's always going to be different kinds of boundaries met, different kinds of things going on. There's just no interest in all of that. Yeah, I get that that's not there and why that's, that would be a good thing. But just is there a sense of like deep connection, interpersonal connection, or I wonder what would be in place of that, that. Compassion. Compassion would be in place of it. Cool. Thank and you. being friendly, that's all. Having friendliness. Yeah, loving kindness and compassion also creates a lot of oxytocin. No, it's also oxytocin. That's why actually Bhante would tell, uh, he told one person, he says, he said to him, be careful when you're with loving kindness and you see a woman, she might mistake it for, you know, you flirting with her. 
Huh? Well, I mean, that's from the Vasudhi Maga and things like that. But yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, what is your take on if there are families following them, then only the good Sotapannas are anagamis or arats will come. So there's a relation and, you know, not having interest in <laughs> one plus one is okay. But uh, what, is, uh, what about uh, Mane, how do you uh, um, say about Mane, families wherein Dhamma is followed? And because family structure is going to be there. Yeah. So, you know, that's why we have that concept of the Kulankala Sodapana, which is uh, it means from clan to clan, family to family, which means. They start taking rebirth in families that follow the Dhamma. So sometimes when there are families that get together, they get introduced to the Dhamma later on in their life, and then they start following the Dhamma. Or, and there's nothing wrong, this is what I'm trying to explain here, there's nothing wrong with romantic love, but if you're asking if an arahat has romantic love, it's impossible for them to have it. It's impossible for an anagami to have romantic love. But a stream enter or a sakadagami, they can still get into relationships. As soon as that lust goes away, there is no capacity for seeing anyone in a sexual light. That's the thing. So families that have cultivated the Dhamma can produce arahats. Absolutely. Through you know cultivation of practice inspiring the child, and then the child decides, hey, I want to take this all the way forward. And they leave the home life and become bhikkhus and become arahats. We saw from that day, from Majjhiminikaya 44, that the couple, Visaka and Damadina. Visaka became an anagami, and then Damadina said, I'm inspired and I want to go see the Buddha. Then got inspired to become a bhikkhuni, and then became an arahant. Is it possible for an arahant to, let's say, continue working in a whatever you know, occupation? Uh, no, I don't think so. Because uh, why are we working? What are, what are you working for? What is the intention behind working? You know, I think they could apply the dhamma. I said the I, I said earlier in this retreat. I think arahats would be the best CEOs. Because of their because of their ability to just see things as they are, right? They don't get disturbed by this or that. But they no longer have intentions rooted in, you know, working for passion, working for money, working for this or whatever it might be. They become secluded, and at best they might teach, but even then they don't really have an inclination. They just are okay with their practice, okay with being secluded and continuing to cultivate. Yes, they need the support. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there are no pacheka arhats, as we call them. Oh, 
Oh, one last question. And then. So it is a bit technical question. Uh, so can you just give a different um, difference between quiet mind, uh, neither perception nor non-perception, and signless collectedness? In terms so, of experience. So neither perception or non-perception is that state where you feel like you're awake and asleep at the same time. And there's all of these different patterns in the background and you can't really make sense of what's going on. That's neither perception or non-perception. But that is the background of the mind. That's the atmosphere of the mind. But the quiet mind is the object where awareness rests on the mind itself. Signless awareness is where the mind becomes too coarse and there's just the awareness of the awareness. So is the quiet mind is uh, like in all three states there is a quiet attention to quiet mind, right? No, in signless awareness there is no quiet mind. Quiet mind dissolves. That's the thing. Signless awareness means objectless awareness. The mind is looking but not even looking at itself or looking outward, not looking anywhere. Can I say like uh, quiet mind comes first then Neither perception nor non-perception or other way around? Other way around. Thanks. Okay. Well, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, we have an example in the suttas of Chitta, the Anagami. He was, uh, he was a millionaire, but he was an amazing meditator and he would even teach the monks. So, you had a question. Uh, the question that he was asking. So, neither perception or non-perception is that state where you're awake and asleep at the same time. Quiet mind is the object that the mind takes. The awareness just rests on the mind. We call it quiet mind, but of course, quiet mind is not always altogether quiet. There's always stuff going on, but it just rests in the awareness of the mind. Signless awareness or signless collectedness of mind is where the mind itself becomes coarse and dissolves. And there's just awareness, you could say pure awareness, but it's not looking at anything. That's why it's called signless or objectless awareness. So in the sequence of things, neither perception or non-perception, mind rests in quiet mind, then there is a signless collectedness of mind. So this process happens from jhana 8, neither perception or non-perception, quiet mind, signless collectedness of mind.